Welcome to Confronting the Madness, a podcast exploring the psychological issues of our time. My guest today is Yalda Kazemi. Yalda's story is powerful, emotional, honest, and raw. Her courage in sharing her story is admirable. I feel obliged to make a content warning to listeners that some of the stories discussed in this episode are raw. Yalda and I spoke about her journey battling postpartum depression which eventually led to postpartum psychosis. 23% of mothers having recently given birth reported feelings consistent with postpartum depression or anxiety. The incidence of postpartum psychosis is 1 to 2 per 1,000 births, or 0.001 to 0.002% likelihood. 10% of mothers who are diagnosed with postpartum psychosis result in either a mother's suicide or infanticide. Yalda is a mom, mental health advocate, entrepreneur, and author of a new book entitled Unapologetic Truths, The Reality of Postpartum We Don't Talk About. Yalda's personal experience with postpartum mental illness has led her on a mission to be a voice for mothers who suffer in silence and to raise awareness and break stigmas associated with mental illness. And now I bring to you the courageous Yalda Kazemi. Yalda Kazemi, welcome to Confronting the Madness. Uh, thanks so much for, for joining me today. Thank you for having me on your show. It's a pleasure. So you are a mom, first and foremost, entrepreneur, stylist, and a recent author of a book entitled Unapologetic Truths, The Realities of Postpartum We Don't Talk About. And We'll get into the book, obviously, and in and, and your story, but maybe just taking a step back, maybe tell me a little bit about yourself, um, where, where you grew up, where you're from, um, your experiences with mental ill health, if any, um, prior to um, your pregnancy and birth of your son. Uh, just curious about, about your upbringing. Yeah. So I was born in uh, Tehran, Iran. Um, and my family fled Iran when I was seven years old. And then we lived in Italy for a little over a couple of years. And uh, through that, we kind of made our way to Canada. So I've been here since I was about nine years old, grown up uh, most of my life here in Calgary. So Canada is home to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so, you know, had a normal upbringing and everything. Um Went to school, and uh, by the time I got to university, went to school for, uh, I originally wanted to go into medical school, and then I realized mm -hmm. I'm not so great <laughs> at math, uh, so that didn't work out so well in my life, but uh, <laughs> I uh, did some sciences for the first couple of years of university, then I transferred into psychology because I just had an interest in that area, so I did a Bachelor of Science in Psychology, and um, I had four classes left to graduate and decided it would be a great idea to just tag on a second degree 
degree. So I decided to do a Bachelor of Commerce as well. Um, and then I worked in the oil and gas industry in HR and policy for mm-hmm. many number of years, probably about eight years. And uh, after that, I uh, had my son and the whole journey from there began. So I kind of left the corporate world after that. And what drove you to psychology in the first place? Yeah, I took one psych class as uh, an option and I just really liked it. I thought it was very intriguing. I'm always fascinated by how people think and behave in relationships and things like that. And I just, I really enjoyed the class. So when I decided to switch out of the sciences, I thought this was probably the best area for me just because of my interest. And uh, yeah, I just, I've always found it very intriguing. I, I, mm-hmm. I love, although I'm a very shy person, which sometimes I come across very unapproachable because I'm shy. Um, I actually really enjoy talking to people and getting to know mm-hmm. people once I'm comfortable. You can't stop me from talking. I'm a chatterbox. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just that all kind of tied in together. I love human behavior and just analyzing how things work. And that's how it led to that path. So, so it had it, it had nothing to do with any sort of lived experience with um, anxiety, depression, any sort of mental ill health leading up to it. It was more about your interest in human behavior and how humans- absolutely. I mean, I mean, I've had individuals in my life who had anxiety or depression that I'd been around, but me myself, I never experienced anything. And I just, I found it. I remember one of my favorite classes was uh, behavioral um, abnormal psychology. And I just, you know, learning about all the different um, psychological ailments. And I thought it was so intriguing and neat. And that just kind of really, really resonated with me. I thought it was very interesting to learn that. And also because I, I found it intriguing at even that age to want to learn about what a lot of mental illness was and, and by no means that I really know about it until after I experienced mm-hmm. it with the postpartum, but I still wanted to learn about it because even then I saw where there's criticism and judgment towards people or sometimes people are judged in a certain way mm-hmm. because of mental illness. And there's areas that I didn't even know about. Um, so it was just very intriguing for me mm-hmm. to learn all of that. And it just kind of grew from there. And when, when you talk about some of, your friends or families or colleagues that have um, struggled with mental illness. How did you how did you approach it at the time, prior to your own personal experience? Um, just curious about, you know, not having lived experience versus having lived. Experience. Yeah, thinking back to it, obviously, I wish that for some of the people that were in my life who had experienced it, that I was way more supportive or even more understanding. As I said, I even taking it in school never fully gave me the appreciation or understanding of what the person was going through or how to support them. And I'm not bashing, you know, education or theoretical knowledge in any way, but it is nothing in comparison for me, Mm -hmm. at least, um, to actually experiencing or understanding it in a different way. Um, For me, I look back at there's moments that I probably criticized or judged other people who had any form of anxiety and depression or said, you know, the, the very thing I speak about in my book, which is why don't you just think positive or, you know, snap out of it. all those comments that I later learned were, were so detrimental. And so in hindsight, I wish I had a greater knowledge back then to have been more supportive, but at the same time, I look at it as a learning experience. And maybe this happened so that 
I could learn as well as helping educate others about what the experience does actually entail versus what a lot of us are brought up to believe mental illness means and that judgment and and criticism that a lot of people place on others. I think um, I've really changed my perspective on that since since having lived experience now. Yeah. So so let's maybe um, talk about your book. So you 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 struggled. Um, in a, in a quite uh, acute way with postpartum mental illness and even postpartum uh, psychosis, which was something that I wasn't uh, particularly familiar with myself before uh, reading your book. Um, but maybe maybe talk through a little bit about your journey um, that you write about in the book and, and some of some of the experiences that you you had. Um, just we can start it at the very very beginning sure so um you know my husband and i got married in 2009 we waited a little while before planning to have kids and we decided okay you know at one point we're ready and we wanted to plan having a family and growing up i was never someone who really had that huge maternal instinct to be a mother and to have a lot of kids or anything like that in fact growing up a lot of times i said i never wanted kids and it's not until after i got married where I changed my mind on that. My husband and I decided we did want children. And I always kind of in my mind thought, okay, well, then I'll probably have a couple kids and, you know, just go on about my life. And I, during my pregnancy, now in hindsight, when I look back to it and my family um, says the same thing, we realized that I think my my postpartum mental illness was kind of more of a perinatal and starting earlier, not just even after I had given birth. Because throughout my pregnancy, I was also very... um, kind of just lacking in emotion in in a sense. It's not that I didn't have emotions, but whenever you'd ask me or anybody would ask me, how do you feel about, you know, having a baby or are you excited? My answer would always be, uh, yeah, but um, I'm just really nervous. I'm, I'm, I'm scared about the birth and things like that. And so it was mm-hmm. never a joyous uh, filled emotion kind of to begin with, but nobody, none of us really clued in on that right. because no one had experienced anything like this. And so mm-hmm. in, um, 2013, I had my son and I remember at the hospital just immediately, like when he was born, my husband was just elated, full of joy, eyes full of tears, happiness. I was completely numb. I felt literally nothing. I just, I remember thinking, why don't I feel anything? This feels so weird. Am I not supposed to be happy right now? And so I remember at one point they even kind of gave me my son Amir and I put him on my chest and I just, I was so staring at him in such a blank, empty way. And I don't know, it just all felt very weird. And while all of this is happening around me, I'm trying to look like I'm happy, take a family photo, force a smile. But for me, honestly, Mm -hmm. I felt nothing. And they, uh, I remember it was the point where they were wheeling me back to kind of the recovery room where I actually asked the nurse, nobody else was there with me, but me and the nurse. And I said, I don't really feel anything. Is this normal? Like, I, I don't, feel happy or any emotion right now and she just kind of looked at me and said oh yeah you know don't you don't pay attention to everything you see on tv and stuff like that not everybody has that same reaction sometimes it takes time Mm -hmm. for the for the emotions to come and for that bond to grow I'm like okay but deep down inside something just didn't feel right it just didn't it didn't flow with me and I I remember thinking to myself I know she's saying this but trust her I mean she works in postpartum she probably knows better than you do but something in my gut just didn't feel right and so from there, yeah, that's where the journey just kind of began. It, it was all a lot of 
sad moments, not feeling a lot of connection. And then obviously leaving the hospital, coming home. And then I had a lot of issues with breastfeeding, my body just not producing enough milk. And Mm -hmm. that's where the, the first set of a lot of the criticism and judgments really started from because even at the hospital and then after the hospital, there was just this constant pressure on breastfeed, breastfeed, breastfeed. You have to do it. You have to do it. You have to breastfeed like this, try this, try Mm -hmm. that. And obviously that Mm -hmm. coupled with lack of sleep and stress is is not helping breastfeeding in the first place. Right. But when you have that constant pressure Mm -hmm. and then I had, you know, people around me who are very, um, adamant about breastfeeding being the best and only way. And, um, I'm not, I'm not in any way denying that I'm not saying breastfeeding is not good, of course. Uh, but for some of us, it's where there's physiological reasons, psychological reasons that maybe hinder that from taking place. It's really hard to deal with people constantly berating you, telling you that, your child's basically going to not be healthy if you don't breastfeed them, that, you know, you don't want to breastfeed them. And for me, I had a lot of criticism around just because I'm I'm very much into fashion and I always love dressing up that, you know, I had a lot of judgments around you don't want to breastfeed because you don't want your body shape to change or you don't want to breastfeed because you didn't ever want it to be mm-hmm. a mom. And a lot of those criticisms just constantly being forced upon me, which none of them were true, by the way. I mean, I tried everything I could. I was attached to pumps mm-hmm. all day long. And that in itself is just traumatic mm-hmm. on its own, just the amount of hours you're spent on that lack of sleep, things like that. Yeah. So a lot of that stuff kind of, I think, really helped to progress symptoms of depression that I was starting to get. And that negative commentary that was constantly berating me just really helped exacerbate everything and make it worse. And so I was always crying. I was always down. And it wasn't until about the six-week checkup that you have to go back to the maternity clinic where my sister, my middle sister, um, Ida, Mm -hmm. and she's a social worker, she came with me. And she's the one that started to do a little bit of research in in this area and was like, I think, I think Yelda might have this thing. And she was telling me and my family, you know, called postpartum depression. And I remember thinking right at the outset, what in the world is that? Mm. I mean, I did a psych degree. How do I not know about this? And Mm. I was quite a nerd in school. Like it's not, it's not that I didn't read it, you know, and just missed it. I I never recall ever being taught Mm -hmm. anything about postpartum depression. And so it was just kind of a, what is going on? And at the doctor's office, a doctor kind of asked me how I'm doing, started asking me about my mood. And I was like, oh, I'm fine. No, just really sleep deprived, tired, kind of down here and there. But just I think it's just because I'm not sleeping. And it's my sister who piped up and said she's lying. Um, That is not the truth at all. She is not doing well. This is what's going on. She's constantly down. She's crying. She can't focus. She can't just get her emotions together. There's something wrong. And so the doctor right away just Mm kind of looked at me and said, I think you, you have postpartum depression. And right away, I remember my, my heart kind of sinking, thinking, what do you mean? I like, I have depression. And um, for me, I grew up in a culture Mm -hmm. where, um, and I know a lot of other Middle Eastern cultures I've spoken to people can say the same Mm -hmm. thing, but in the Persian culture, for sure, you are very much taught and brought up, at least in the more traditional families that you 
don't talk about mental illness. You don't ever admit to mental illness. It's a sign of weakness. What will other people think is the mm -hmm. biggest thing in our culture. It's always lived by what will other people think of you. Um, it'll be a detriment to your future. It'll be a detriment to having friends. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, if you're younger, they'll say it'll be a detriment to anyone ever wanting to marry you. Like just things like that are, are things you grow up with. And so I remember just thinking, oh, I, I don't want this label of being depressed. I, I don't want this. And so the doctor kind of immediately said, okay, I think you need to take this antidepressant medication, which was point number two. So on top of, I don't want the label. Now I don't want medication either. I don't want to be on antidepressants. Right. And so yeah. I remember I said to her, I, I, I don't like taking medication. I'm just someone who just doesn't like to take medication if I don't have to. Right. And she kind of looked at me and said, right. you know, Gen generally sorry? speaking, generally speaking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Generally speaking, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I mean, obviously, if yeah, I if yeah, I need yeah. it, I'll take it. But um, I was just a little apprehensive about wanting to be on the medication, and she kind of just looked at me and said, "Think about it as a chemical imbalance. Think about it as um, her example was as a diabetic may need insulin. You have neurotransmitters in your mind that are kind of out of out of." order right now. And so this medication will help you. And that's, it's the moment she said it in that way that kind of uh, calmed me down a bit more because I've always been very inclined. Like I said, I originally wanted to go into medical school. So I'm, I love human physiology and learning about all that. Mm -hmm. So when she put it that way, I kind of said, okay, fine. And I hesitantly took the medication prescription and I, you know, left there, filled the medication and I took the prescription and when I took the first medication, I was I was really nervous about wanting to take it, but I took it, kind of sat around with it, and um, you know, and I have to preface this: this is not most people's typical reaction. So I don't want anyone ever hearing this to think I take medication right. and right away I have an adverse reaction. It's it's, it's very unlikely, but mm -hmm. in my case, I had an adverse reaction. But but some people do have adverse reactions Absolutely. too. Uh, 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 so was it, this was an SSRI, or was it? What type of yeah. antidepressant was it? So it was an SSRI, and it's one that's very commonly prescribed for postpartum. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't, I don't say that it's that's not the truth. It may be, but what people don't often understand is, even though something may be the most commonly or one of the most commonly prescribed, doesn't necessarily mean that works on all ethnicities and backgrounds and genetic compositions. And the, and I learned that later mm -hmm. from my psychiatrist as we battled through a long time of finding the right meds for me. And that was because it depends on where a lot of that research is done. And so when, when you look at most, the way I've been explained is most uh, research on uh, mental health medication, particularly antidepressants, anti-anxiety is done on North American populations, more of a Caucasian population, mm -hmm. where when mm -hmm. you're of a different ethnic background, different genetic makeup, sometimes those medications don't react the same way. So what may work for the right. more larger general population may not necessarily be the best for someone like myself. And so I had a very adverse reaction to it. Um, I actually, it really heightened uh, my my symptoms and I started to get really bad anxiety symptoms. I remember I was literally clenching like this, shaking just back and forth, rocking like this mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. from, from the experience I was having. The anxiety just went a thousand fold and I went almost 48 hours without sleeping. And so I immediately, you know, went wow. to the clinic after and told my family doctor, and he said, oh, gosh, yes, you're having an adverse reaction to this. Uh, switched it up right away to a different medication. And 
from there, the journey of finding the right type um, of meds began, which mm-hmm. was a whole journey in itself. Because like I said, there's, I still think in the medical world, there needs to be more research in this area of what medications work better, maybe with what genetic compositions or ethnicities or backgrounds, or if, or if there's any, um, you know, big uh, research in that area, because it took a while for me to find the right ones. And I mean, the one the doctor changed me to gave me a little bit of relief from my symptoms, but then not fully. And then I had other symptoms. I had a lot of symptoms of just not feeling emotions. And it was just kind of a long journey from there where there's a lot of up and downs. My anxiety was really bad. I couldn't be around my son alone. So somebody had to always be around me. Um, And at this point, it was more of a fear Mm -hmm. of being alone with him versus, you know, any harm or anything like that. But This all kind of progressed for a few months until it was really close to about six months where my family, just before he had turned six months, my family decided, let's take a trip to Mexico. Let's go get you away from this. Maybe a change of scenery will help. So we went to Mexico and I remember just being down every day, crying all the time. And Mm -hmm. they had booked um, a massage for me one day to go and get a little bit of relaxation. And my mom was uh, poolside with my son everybody else was kind of in the water having fun. And I remember lying on the, on the massage table. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, I had this thought just popped into my mind that said, you need to kill your son. And I remember just shaking, being so scared, petrified as what just happened, where this come from. Um, and mm-hmm. so I just immediately kind of got dressed and ran. And I was crying. I just, I really remember just not being able to breathe or even see through where I was going. I was crying so much. Found my mom and I just freaking out in front of everybody at the resort. I, I, I had a thought to kill him. I had a thought to kill him. I don't know what to do. And my mom is just trying to calm me down. Obviously my family, the rest of them saw they were coming. And she's just calming mm-hmm. me down saying, don't worry. It's just a thought. You haven't done anything to him. He's here. He's safe. You're fine. But that was really one of the scariest moments because it just happened out of nowhere. I don't even know where this thought came from. And it really scared me. And, and so, you know, they calmed me down. The rest of the trip was filled with, again, days of me crying. There, There were little glimmers throughout where I would look like I'm happy and felt good for a moment. And then it would go right back. And that's one of the hardest parts of the whole journey for me was really moments, glimmers where you get that positivity. You're like, oh my God, I think I'm actually getting better. And then the negativity hits. And so learning to deal with that was a big part of my recovery in that I have to understand that there's back and forth, back and forth. And that's kind of one of the things that I tell people a lot now is understand that the journey is filled with a lot of back and forth until it just becomes a lot more positive. And so after Mexico, we came back to Calgary and it was, you know, shortly thereafter where I was at my mom's house. One day I was changing my son on a change pad on on her carpet and I got up to throw the diaper away and I have no idea how, again, this even happened, but I just had a thought that I need to kill him and and crush his skull with my foot. And so I held the diaper in my hand and I I remember just lifting my leg and I don't even know how, how, like, it's not like I willingly wanted to, I don't even know how my body, I just lifted my leg and all of a sudden within seconds, I just realized, oh my God, what am I doing? And I dropped a diaper, screamed, pulled back and 
I remember just being really, really scared. Um, and that was the moment, I think the worst moment for me where I realized I'm not getting better. This medication is helping, but not fully to the extent that I need. And I am very capable of now possibly taking his life. And throughout all this, I was always, my doctor, my psychologist, psychiatrist, sorry, kept telling me, are you having thoughts of harming anyone? Are you having thoughts of harming yourself? And the answer was kind of always no. Um, and she had told me, if you ever get to that point, if you're ever, you know, getting to the point where you think you can't control anything um, with your mind, you need to go to the hospital. Like, you know, if it's a day that you can't get an appointment with me, go to the hospital. And I was always right. afraid that if I ever did that and admitted that I was really seriously sick, that they would take him away from mm -hmm. me and that I'd never have my son again. And when the episode happened at my mom's house, it was the point where I thought, I don't even care. It, it might be better for him if they take him right. versus I'm, I'm probably going to yeah. end up killing him. So I don't want that. And so I just screamed for my mom. I told her, call my husband, tell him to come and, you know, take me to the hospital. And, and he did, and he came and I told him what happened and poor guy, he was petrified at, at all of this, but he at the same time wanted to remain calm and help me out. So we left Amir with my mom and we went to the hospital and yeah, I just, I went to the triage and the triage nurse spoke to me. And like I said in the book, I don't remember what she looked like or anything, but I remember telling her that I'm just really scared. I'm going to, I'm going to kill him and I don't want to, and it's okay if they take him away from me. I just, I don't want to, I don't want to harm him. And she just kind of helped me and just was, was so sweet in that she said, you know, a lot of this it can happen and it, you're sick. It's not that you're wanting to harm him. It's that you're sick and no one's going to take your son away from you, but you, you need to get help and it's okay. And I mm -hmm. thank you for coming in because there's a lot of moms who like you are very afraid of having someone wanting to take their child away from them or having someone wanting to do something to them in terms of taking away their freedoms or rights. And so they don't, come and get help. And that's where you hear all those stories of harm happening to mothers or children. And so mm -hmm. she thanked me for coming mm -hmm. in and said, it was really courageous of you to, to do this. And you're just sick. You just need to get help. And, and, you know, you'll, you'll be reunited with your son again when you're well. And that was really reassuring just her telling me that because that was one of my biggest fears. Right. And so yeah. We kind of went from there and the process, um, and again, this is not to scare anybody off from going to the hospital. I, I mentioned this in the book. I, I outlined the process because I want yeah. people, if they know someone going through something this serious or if they're experiencing it themselves, to know that it's okay to go to the hospital. It's okay to get help. Understand yeah. there are some precautions that have to come with it. That's just you know part of the process, mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean it's forever. And so I had to sign basically an agreement that said, although I voluntarily checked myself in, I was not well enough to just voluntarily leave a psychiatric ward and that a doctor would have to deem me, um, right. you know, mentally okay enough to be able to leave, leave the hospital. So, and I remember at first I was a little bit scared of wanting to give that right away saying, well, well what if I'm here for months? And, and it right. was more so as I talked to my husband about it, it was more so doesn't matter even if you have to be here for as long as you have to be in here, it's to get you right. better. That's the whole point. It's not to take away your freedom, but it's to give your freedom back to you. It's to give your life back to you and to give, give your mind back to you. 
And so I, I did that and I was checked into the psychiatric ward and I spent about three weeks there. Um, initially I was under, because at this point I had also had thoughts of harming myself too. And at this point I was under very strict uh, suicide watch protocols. So I was kind of by myself and um, yeah, it just took three weeks of being there. They readjusted my medication levels. I saw someone and spoke to someone every day in terms of doing some, you know, therapy and counseling. I saw a psychiatrist there every day as well. And it was a very difficult experience, but very much needed. So I explain in the book, it's a very lonely place to be because you're kind of by yourself, you don't know anybody there. You you're so nervous about what's going to happen. What is this place like? What what's going to happen to me? Am right. I going to get better? Um, you're on a ward with not just moms with postpartum mental illness, but a lot mm -hmm. of other mental health ailments, very serious cases, and so. Yeah. You know, sometimes that can be a little bit scary in and of itself because you think, okay, what's happening to me? And you see some more severe cases and you think, is this what's going to happen to me? Right. And so some some of that is there. And, and, you know, that's part of the reason why I do all this advocacy, because one day my dream would be that a hospital would have a psychiatric ward for the moms experiencing postpartum mental illness, because mm -hmm. it's a little mm -hmm. bit of a different dynamic than maybe some of the other more right. um, serious uh, conditions. And so I think maybe having an area where you can see your child, because obviously for safety reasons, babies are not, or children are not allowed on uh, that area of the, mm -hmm. of the psych ward. And it's just for their own safety. Right. But that's also something that a mom needs. You need that bond. A baby needs that. You need to develop that bond and connection. Yep. And not being able to have your child around you is kind of difficult. And again, I understand why it happens. I understand the safety reasons for why that's the case. And so in my case, it's my family and my husband who really kind of fought to allow me to still be able to see my son. So they spoke to the doctors and said, okay, you know, when we're allowed to finally have her off the ward, because for a while I wasn't allowed off the unit until I started to get better, right? So they knew that I would be safe. People around me would be safe. Um, after a while, when I was okay enough for them to uh, do that, my husband would, for example, check me out and we would sit in the cafeteria or the hallway Um for little increments at a time. And I would be allowed to see Amir and, um, you know, under the responsibility that they're there, right. I I'm not alone with Amir by myself and all of this rightfully so, because in at that time I was not in a headspace where it would have been safe for Amir to, to be alone with me, but at least I got to see him. I got to hold him. And even though right. half the time I never really felt that connection or bond, in, in hindsight, when I look at it, that was needed for me to still develop yeah. that. Because my son, when you look at him now, when you talk to him now, he's, he's like a leech that's glued to me, basically. I mean, you mm -hmm. would never know he is the child from a mom who felt nothing, felt no love towards him, felt right. no connection. And so um, I think a lot of that had to do with my support system fighting to make sure that that bond always kind of stayed there, fighting to make sure that on even though I was scared or afraid to be alone with him, that they were always around me so that I could be around with him. I could hold him. I could feed him. I could do all that stuff and not feel so um, lonely and afraid and and be present for all those moments, even though I was mentally not fully present for them, at least physically, so that that bond is still fostered. 
Um, yeah. And then after kind of changing all my medication and stuff and, and leaving the hospital, it was a good another couple of years after that until I was, I can say I was fully back to myself um, and off medication and things like that. And it was just, there's a lot of up and downs. I mean, like I said, throughout the whole process, um, even up leading up to the hospital, I went from being down and sad and depressed to then really bad anxiety, afraid, not being able to be with him, to starting to have symptoms of depersonalization and like detachment from the world. So I, I sp speak about this in the book, reality kind of was skewed for me. So there were a lot of times when I would look at people around me and say, is this a dream? Is all of this real? I remember um, I had to pinch people's skin or my own like this and say, like, are people actually real? And for a while, that's I was told to wear an elastic band around my hand and snap that to remind me of the feeling I that I, I'm yeah. actually here. Um, wow. So it was just a, a lot of different emotions and feelings all, all at once. And um, even after the hospital, like I said, I was still on a strong dose of medication. And it was, there was some days where I was slowly starting to get better. And then there was days when I would relapse and, and feel really horrible. And it was, and part of a lot of the up and downs also had to do with negligence on my part. Because like I said, even th throughout a lot of this, I was still of the mindset of, I'm stronger than this. I can beat this on my own. I don't need medication. Right. And so as soon as I would see a little bit right. of progress, I would say, okay, I don't need to be on this medication anymore. Get off of it. You mm -hmm. can do it on your own mm -hmm. or go down on the dose and obviously don't tell your doctor you're doing that. And then, so yeah. I, I would hinder my own progress and I'd be right back to her office shortly thereafter mm -hmm. in tears. Like, Oh my right. God, I'm horrible. I'm worse again. And she used to always tell me, don't, don't do this. Don't touch things, you know? And and that's one of one of the biggest mistakes I think that I talk about in the book is the best thing you can do is admit to yourself that you are ill and that you need help. Mm -hmm. You don't need to be a superhero and that it's okay to have the mental illness label and it's okay if you have to be on medication and not everybody will need to be on medication. But if you're right. a yeah. very severe case like mine and you have to be, please don't play doctor and mess around with it. Don't just go up and down, mm -hmm. take it one day, not another day. All of that is so hindering to your progress and it can lead you to be sick a lot longer than you need to be. And mm -hmm. yeah, and, and it wasn't until basically eventually as I got better, slowly my medication doses got to come down, got to come down. And those symptoms of, um, you know, la depersonalization and, and the detachment from reality obviously subsided a lot more. And so, it was in, uh, I want to say January, 2016, I believe early, early 2016, where I was completely able to come off the antipsychotic medication. Mm -hmm. Um, because I, I was, that, was that your sister, was that your sister's birthday? Uh, no. So or? before that, um, uh, earlier in the year, uh, I got off the antipsychotics for, for later in that year, um, at about August timeframe, my sister got married. Um, so yeah, oh, yes, yeah. So it was my sister's yeah. wedding, but I was still on the anti, um, antidepressants. Um, and I the see, reason yeah. was because obviously the delusions and stuff had stopped. So the antipsychotic could, mm -hmm. could be stopped, but, um, having such a severe case of anxiety and depression, uh, we felt with my doctor that even though I was starting to get much better, that it makes more sense to stay on it for a little bit longer to avoid yeah, a, a yeah. relapse again. Right. 
And right. so because of that, I stayed on it. But my dose had gone by by that point near my sister's wedding from the highest possible dose to the lowest dose. So that in itself was huge progress for me, right? For me to be able to go from such a high dose to, to be able to come down to a lower dose. And I, by this point, though, I mean, you know, after about, I'd say a year and a half or so of, of being sick, it's, it's the point where I finally admitted to myself and accepted that it's okay if you have this forever mm-hmm. and you need to take this medication, even at this little dose for the rest of your life, it's fine. Right. Take it. You're functional. You're able to function in life. You're able to enjoy life, feel emotions again, feel an ounce of happiness again. It's fine. You know, it is what it is. It's nothing to be ashamed yeah. of. And that's when I actually started to get better was when I kind of mm-hmm. stopped trying to mess with the whole process and say, it's okay that yeah. I have all this. It doesn't make me mm-hmm. a lesser person. It doesn't make me a weak person. It doesn't mean I'm not a good mom. It, it none of that, it, right? That society right. Mm-hmm. tries to tell you is the case. None of that is real. I am perfectly fine if I have to take this medication. And that's like I said, when I started to get much better and it wasn't until my sister's wedding where we happened to be overseas and I forgot to take my medication um, for 10 days where I realized, oh my gosh, I had actually not taken it. And it was like my system just kind of weaned off of it. And I was so preoccupied and distracted that I never felt anything. And, you know, at this point, then I was completely off medication by, by her wedding. Wow. Wow. Well, that's... um. Can I can I just put a pin in your story there and, and just circle back because that's that that's a that's a ba- that's a ba- that's a battle yeah and um, like even just going back to the beginning where so presumably you weren't familiar with postpartum depression during your pregnancy no and then so you you started by having guilt about not feeling excited during your pregnancy about the birth of your child and then there was the stigma of the the breastfeeding mm-hmm. and then compounded by the stigma of mental illness with an added layer of cultural stigma which would make that even you know increase stigma um and so even even just that as a as a starting point is would have been so challenging, I think, for, for anyone. And then not knowing in advance about the possibility of postpartum depression being um, a possibility when, and like, and I was just doing some research and you had some research in your book too. Um, 23% of mothers face postpartum anxiety or depression. And then in your case, which in your book, you talk about postpartum psychosis. I mean, that is very, very unlikely. I think you said in your book, 0.001 to 0.002% of uh, women will, will suffer from postpartum psychosis. And then for you to have um, an adverse reaction to the medication, um, you know, that's, it's hard to even... Um, appreciate how challenging that would have been for you. And so, you know, first thing I would say is um, you're very courageous for battling through what would have been hell um, for two years. And then, you know, the, the thing that when I was reading your book, which again, haven't come across 
much in, in my time, but the notion of thinking of wanting to kill your child or in infant infanticide, um, where they say that I read a stat that said um, with postpartum psychosis, 10% of cases will result in suicide or infanticide. And so, I mean, that's all these things are actually quite more common than you would, you would expect. And I think tens or hundreds of millions of women around the world annually are struggling to some degree with this. And so for you to be an advocate and educate um, both men and women about these challenges, I think is incredibly important because, you know, if you would have had the, the knowledge or, um, at, at the onset, not to say that things would have been quite different, but I think that would have maybe led you down a path where you would have sought treatment earlier, because I think a part of your book said that there is a women's mental health clinic or specialized clinic in Calgary that it took several months or a few months for somebody to recommend that to you and you never even knew about it. So I think um, education and awareness on that front um, is incredibly important. You know, one of the parts that really struck me in your book, um, which I thought was a pivotal moment, and I, I actually, it really resonated with me, was when you were speaking with your doctor and you're quite worried about your your child feeling like you don't you don't love him, and then your doctor was saying, "Well, do do you feed him? Do you change him? Do you put him to sleep?" Um, and she she said, "You know, your son thinks you love him, and he doesn't really probably understand your psychological challenge that you're going through." So um, that was really, I think, a moment for you where it was another. I don't know if it was a pivotal moment for you, but a moment where you realize that, yeah, my son does love me regardless of what is going on psychologically for me. Absolutely. I think that 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 was one of the, like I've said throughout the book, there's a lot of moments where I don't remember things. There's a lot of moments which I have no recollection of, but that moment with the doctor, with the psychiatrist, was one of the most pivotal moments. And, you know, her, like I said, I I just constantly had this guilt and this shame of mm -hmm. why do not I not feel this love the way I, I, I know love to be um, towards mm -hmm. this child. And how is he going to grow up? Is he going to grow up being a decent human being? What if something happened? Like, what if he just grows up to be this person with no emotion whatsoever, this cold soul because his mom didn't love him. Right. And, right. and, and like you said, she said to me, you know, do you feed him? Do you bathe him? Do you pick him up and console him when he's crying? And I said, yes to all that. And she said, well, then he feels love because, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and the way she explained it, you know, my interpretation of all this was to a child, you know, or to a baby, their perception mm -hmm. of love and understanding of love is very different than us as adults. Obviously for us to feel love from someone, we have a whole laundry list of things that have to be done, said, thought, felt in order for yes. us to feel loved. Um, right. Whereas a baby doesn't have that, right? It's meeting their basic needs. And so, yes. you know, she told me your son does feel loved because you are doing mm -hmm. all those things for him. You are, you know, connecting with him in that sense. And 
that was really reassuring because part of the whole postpartum mental illness process, whether it's, you know, depression, anxiety, psychosis, all of the above, um, is that you put a lot of shame and guilt on yourself. So I know you alluded earlier to all the different types of stigmas that I had from other people, mm -hmm. from society, from culture. Part of it was self-imposed stigma too, right? There's mm -hmm. a lot of pressure moms put moms put on themselves with regards to, am I a good enough mom? Am I doing this right? Why am I not mm -hmm. feeling this? Why am I not feeling love towards my child? What kind of a horrible mom am I? Who, who doesn't feel love? Or that even goes back to, um, you know, I, I spoke about growing up. How many times have a lot of us heard stories on the news of a mom who either harmed her child, you know, drowned her child, put their child in a garbage can, mm -hmm. gave a child away, and, mm -hmm. and so many of us. And it's not to make anybody feel shame or guilty. It's just to help people understand that this is so common and prevalent in society is that so many of us, I know I was one of them. I remember the first time I saw a story like that on the news growing up thinking, what kind of a horrible human being would do that to their own child like how could you be a mom and do that and it's not until i experienced all this until right. i almost took my son's life where i i was so sad thinking mm -hmm. that i had also been one of those people mm -hmm. to ever think that way of someone because they didn't choose it mm -hmm. the same way i didn't choose to become sick and the hard part of all this is society and a lot of people make you feel like you've done something wrong. You've said something wrong. You've thought something wrong, you know, decisions you've made and that you brought it upon yourself mm -hmm. or there's things you've done and said or haven't done and said that caused you to become ill and you brought it upon yourself. You, you should have done this differently or you should have thought this differently. And that is not the case. Mm -hmm. That's not why people get this. I mean, I'm sure there's components associated with it. Obviously, right. you know, if you're if you're having certain other issues going on in life that maybe exacerbate it, but it is not the reason why someone will get postpartum mental illness. It's kind of luck of the draw. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm sure there's genetic predispositions in some aspect, right? Um, yeah. Like I've said, I've had people uh, in family who have dealt with anxiety or depression in the past, but um, I don't think it's will you don't will it in any way basically right. is what I really wanted women and men and anybody reading the book to understand. Mm -hmm. And that's why I, I talk about this book may have the word postpartum in it because I happened to have that variety of mental illness and postpartum is, is such an important topic to me, but the book can really benefit people with any types of anxiety and depression, I feel. And it's not just meant for women to read, it's meant for everybody to read because at some point in life, we're all touched by some form of this, right? And, and it's all about education. It's all about you know really understanding what mental illness looks and feels like because for the most part, I mean, after I recovered, you know, I, uh, with with meeting new people and things like that, nobody, like when people look at me from the outside, they would never guess this is my story. This is what happened. And that's part of the reason why I, I wanted to advocate so much to change all of that, right? Because you can't look at someone and tell if they're anxious or depressed or going through any of this stuff. Um, people a lot of times have to hide it or they feel like they don't feel safe enough to tell others. And again, also back to the point of resources. I mean, like I said, I never learned about postpartum mental illness. And I was the first in my group of friends and people that have had 
kids who got this. So nobody really knew what in the world was happening. Mm-hmm. Nobody knew how to help. And even, even to the part of a lot of doctors, I think, don't even know about the resources. Like I right. said, for me, it was um, Cheryl, a support worker from a nonprofit here called Families Matter, who happened to come talk to me, who realized, oh no, like you need you need more more advanced help. And she's the one that called the Women's Mental Health Clinic and said, there's a patient you guys really have to get in. And it's not until Cheryl told me about it that I learned of the Women's Mental Health Clinic. And I remember thinking, why don't the doctors know about it. Right. Why, why did the maternity clinic not recommend mm-hmm. me to this place? And so just even shedding a spotlight on those places and the fact that there are doctors out there who specialize in this field, they understand it really well, get help to the right people, you know, so that they, they can see the right type of doctor to help them with this. And the more we talk about it, the more people have an understanding, the more, you know, someone who's pregnant right now can read my book. It's not meant to scare them to think that it's going to happen to them. Cause I, I speak about this, a case like mine, where you get all of the above together is quite rare, right? right, um, right. To have so much of it all happen at the same time. But at the same time, it is a possibility of whether mm-hmm. you can get some of it or in some combination and it's to just educate people to understand sooner what the symptoms look like. So it's not, a race to scramble for who can figure out what's going on. It's more so I remember reading about this. Okay. I have an idea. Do I see someone going through it who I'm supporting or am I, am I seeing any of right. those symptoms myself and I can ask for help sooner and I can understand that asking for help is okay to do. It's not a sign of being weak. You know, if, if I'm a mom who's experiencing a disconnect from my child and not feeling that bond or love right, right. away, it's okay. It doesn't make me a horrible human being. It doesn't mean I'm the worst mom on earth. It doesn't mean my child's going to grow up and something's going to be wrong. You know, all of this has a solution and it has help. And that's why it was so important to me to put the book out there and share my story, but in very raw detail, right? Mm -hmm. Because until we learn that sugarcoating, um, what mental illness can really look like, isn't the solution it's not going to help anyone. I could have, I could have sugarcoated a lot of the parts of my book. I could have not really gone in raw detail about some of it, Mm -hmm. but I chose specifically not to, because I don't want people to think it's as simple as sometimes society makes it look like it is. And I want people to understand the nitty gritty components of what it really means to have that and, and for what it means to be supporting someone um, Mm -hmm. in those roles, because people often just think, okay, this person has the, the mental illness and and they have to deal with it but it's not like for me look at how many people around me were affected by it from Mm -hmm. family to friends to co-workers to you know what I mean like it it just has such trickling effects emotionally on so many other people that it's just important to kind of talk about it more out there yeah no I think that was very well said and I, I would I would say also your book is as much as there is um raw details about your struggles. It's also a very um, positive and uplifting book in the sense of encouragement um, throughout the book, and also the notion of having a support system. As much as there is uh, people in your life that cast judgment on you in certain areas, um, it was also quite apparent that you had a support system in place that was unwavering throughout was a very difficult process. And so, um, and, and the last thing I would say about your comments is that you're right about 
this book being about postpartum, but it's also analogous to so many other mental illness situations whereby there's the stigma to say you need help, one, then there's the stigma to seek help, there's the stigma, stigma to access or utilize medication, and then when you get to the point of hospitalization, there's the fear uh, there's a, there's a multitude of fears associated with going to a, a, a mental health hospital, and so I appreciated all those facts, and I think those are all universal um, across the system. And then, lastly, with respect to accessing specialized services, that's also a system wide challenge that I think needs to be addressed because oftentimes, and I hear this all the time, is that you stumble across the support you need rather than it's streamlined for you if you have that challenge. And, you know, for you to happenstance run across somebody who got you to a program that was um, ultimately of benefit to you is is unfortunate. Um, your, your book also, I think, to your credit, does a very good job of not casting judgment on a number of different topics. And I appreciated that about you when you talk about medication or you talk about um, anything that you might want to do to seek help is that, you know, it was what you did and worked for you and it may not work for other people or the adverse effects of medication may not be the case for other people as well. And so, um, I think you capture a lot of universal themes around mental health or mental ill health that would benefit anybody to read. And, and this is obviously specific to a very unique um, perinatal mental illness, but there's so many analogies that I drew from the book. And so I, I really appreciate you you writing the book and advocating for this. And And the last thing I would say is for me, and it may be different for others that aren't as in the, the mental health space. But when I when I talk to people like you who are courageous enough to share what is a deeply personal story, I look at those people like you as powerful and in touch with yourself in a way that makes me respect you more and not less. And so I think that's important for other people to understand that if you have the courage to share this story, um, it means that you're in touch with who you are and and the journey that you went through. And so, um, I'd also encourage people to think about that if if they're not wanting to share their story, because it's not a sign of weakness to seek help, and it's not a sign of weakness to share your story. It's actually a sign of strength. Um, so maybe we can pivot to um, what you're doing now. Um, as an entrepreneur, because that's quite interesting and unique in itself. And but before we do that, um, tell me a little bit about about your son now. How old is he? Um, and what what is what is he up to? Yeah, he's uh, he's eight years old. He actually just turned eight at the end of June, and he's just the biggest blessing, honestly. I I mean, as any parent will say, there's good and bad days, right? There's <laughs> days where you're filled with timeouts and mm -hmm. you're driving me up the wall and why are you not listening? But um, there's just so much, so much more good. And, you know, looking at him, you'd never guess that 
he's the child of a mom who went through all of this and never felt all this. And so that's, I guess, the biggest um, source of happiness for me is that even despite all of that, mm -hmm. you know, my son and I have our bond and connection. My son and I, you know, love spending time together. He's very much attached to me and, and I love that. Right. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he's very, he's very in tune with emotion too. And may, maybe I don't know if that's because of the experience or right. because he just happens to be that way because I'm, I'm more of a emotional person. I'm not sure, but you know, I, I'm just very blessed to have him and he's very, outgoing and very energetic my goodness just like looking at him half the day's run and i'm thinking i'm getting tired looking at you running let alone being the one to do the running um so he's you know he's very energetic but he's very very intelligent and brilliant and you know there's just so many amazing qualities he has and i'm just so blessed that i get to watch him grow and and be a part of all that and what i love the most is that you know, I, I get to have a different type of appreciation for it. And, and I don't say that everybody needs this in order to appreciate their children mm -hmm. or the moments with their children. But for me, it's a different type of appreciation sure. because like I said in the book, I had to fight for it. Mm -hmm. I had to fight to be able to even feel that connection and bond and all of that. And so it's just a blessing to, to have all of that. And um, you know, I, I look at this whole postpartum uh, mental illness experience as something that's given me so much more positivity in life than the hardship. Like you said, right at the beginning, it's like a living hell. It was, it was the worst thing I've ever endured in life. Um, and I've been through a ton of hardships. So, I mean, this, this was just the absolute by far worse. And I look at it as it's given me so much more positivity. There's so many more things I've been able to do with it, uh, different directions that I've taken with my life and just a different appreciation of life. I think, you know, they always, there's that saying, you have one life to live, enjoy it. But it's it's sometimes hard to do and really live yeah, by that yeah. until maybe you've had an experience in some form or another. It doesn't have to be mental illness, but in any sort of experience that kind of just changes your perspective. And, and for me, this was that. And, and for me, I always look at it now as, yes, it's funny, you know, in hindsight that I got all of the possible things that could have gone wrong. Um, but at the same time, I think it was meant to be because I, I maybe was given a blessing of a gift of being able to talk about it in a different way, in a more comfortable right. way, in an open way. And, and I do say, you know, as, as even you alluded to, we do need to get better at, at talking about it and, and knowing that it's a sign of courage and strength. It's not a sign mm -hmm. of weakness to admit any of this or talk about it. But I, I also appreciate that some people are just not comfortable For with sure. that. Some Absolutely. people, you know, personality wise, just, just can't put it mm -hmm. all out there. And, and maybe it happened to me because I am someone who's more comfortable right. with that. And in, in the long run, maybe it'll help a group, greater group of people. And so um, I just enjoy, you know, spending time with him uh, as much as I can and just doing all the other things, you know, that, that moms mm -hmm. and kids all, mm -hmm. all do and, and just grateful yeah. for having him in my life. And I would say um, so there's something about, you know, I, I think life to some degree is suffering and, the goal of life is to transcend that suffering. And, and when you have a very, you know, acute or difficult suffering that you transcend, there's something extremely powerful about that in and of itself. And so perhaps that's something that you would, would resonate with you. Um, Absolutely. So, so let's talk about um, your, 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 
entrepreneurial endeavor and what what you're doing, uh, Mary, merging style and mental health. Maybe just share a little bit about that and, and how folks can get involved if if they're interested. Yeah, so I mean, I do I do a few different things right now. Um, one of them um, is to offer services where I merge style with mental health. Um, my company's name is Style Esteem for that reason. It's style and self esteem together. Um, and the reason for that is I've always loved fashion. I've always loved you know dressing mm-hmm. up, things like that. And um, culturally, it's kind of always looked at as a hobby more than a career. So that's not what I went to school for. It's not what I did most of my career in. But after experiencing all this postpartum mental illness and recovering, um, like I said, it was a second chance of life. And I wanted to do something that was kind of something that I had more of a passion or purpose in. And I knew my passion is I've always loved fashion and all of that, but my purpose, which I still also have a strong passion for is advocacy for uh, mental mm-hmm. health, particularly postpartum now. And so I wanted to kind of combine both worlds and merge them together because that's really who I am in its entirety. I'm, I'm a combination of both. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, um, I started to notice also people around me who maybe were on mental health medication, who, um, had other, uh, ailments or life circumstances happening where they were on different medication or different things in life that was happening and they were either gaining weight or losing weight or their body shape was changing. And I started to see how a lot of people are internalizing that as a lot of you know negativity. Their self-perceptions were really skewed. And so I would see people who would say, I've, I've gained so much weight from this medication. I hate the way I look. I got to get off this stuff. And I would kind of sit down and talk to them and say, well, that's kind of counterproductive to your well-being, right? Because if you're not meant to get off of this without consulting a doctor, that might not be good for you. Right. Or, you know, just, just kind of talking them through it. And so I started to think that part of the reason is when, when people either gain weight or lose weight, they're still dressing their body for the old shape they know, the old person they know. And um, just a, even a little bit of a, a change here can change someone, something as simple as their body shape. And um, depending on what shape someone has, they dress a different way and, and it kind of, you know, makes them feel better. And so a lot of times I, I start to teach people and say, it's not that you're not attractive. It's not that you should feel, you know, horrible in your body. It's that, for example, that pair of pants that cut doesn't work for this body it worked for your old shape it doesn't work for the new shape and so as opposed to trying to get off your medication or hinder your own medical well-being without consulting a doctor let's talk about how I can help you on the exterior um, with the way you dress because you're just putting the wrong things on and a lot of that came from and it's one of the strategies that I talk about in my book is using the external um, how we dress how we look as a way to pull yourself out of anxiety and depression and mental illness. And at first, you know, when I talk to people about this or mention the word style, they just look at me like, oh, this is this is so stupid. This is a sign of vanity mm-hmm. and whatnot. And it's not until I explain it where people kind of understand where it has an impact. And so I look at it as when you're going through mental illness, you kind of feel like you've lost control of your mind. You feel like you can't really gain control of things. Your thoughts are all over the place. And one of the easiest places to start to gain control is the physical, mm-hmm. is the uh, external. It's things that you can you can do in terms of action right away. And then slowly your mind and the thought processes can regain control too, right? So it was my mom who originally forced me to have to dress right. up because I was always someone who dressed up, who did their hair and makeup. Like I just loved it. I find it, you know, creative and fun. And when I was sick, you couldn't recognize me. I was not that person. And 
So she kept telling me, you need to do your hair or put on a little bit of bright lipstick or something bright. And I used to always fight it. And one day she just was very adamant and said, I, I'm not leaving you alone until you do this. You need to do this. And you know, put on a little bit of bright lipstick, red lipstick or something. And you think while you're, while you're sick and not feeling well, that I, I don't care. I don't care. This is so dumb. Right. I, I don't care about this, but honestly, it has an impact over time because when the first image of yourself that you see first thing in the morning is of something that you consider mm -hmm. negative is of someone who looks like they're kind of falling apart or have given up that trains your mind to say, you're hopeless. You're not getting better. You're not doing well. Oh, who cares what you look like? Who cares about the day? Like it just kind of sets a negative tone for your whole day. Whereas if you actually put that time and effort, put on a bright lipstick, put on, you know, something other than a, a sweatpants or whatever it is that you're doing while you're at home, it actually changes your mindset. It actually starts to make you feel like you're more put together. And when you start looking at it as I can control this. So if I can control my external, I can control what I wear on my body and it can help my mood. It can help uplift me a little bit. Even if it's just like 2%, it's still better than mm -hmm. zero. If I can control that, it's a positive reinforcement that you can start to control other areas of your mind too, right? You can, if you can exert control in this area and it can impact your mood positively, why can't you start to maybe go for a walk and help your mood a little bit? Why can't you start to slowly, you know, work with your thoughts and, and throw that negative thought back and just not give it enough attention for it to have a hold or a grippling hold on you. And so it was, it was a big component of getting out of anxiety and depression. And so I wanted to teach other people the same thing that those negative self perceptions are all kind of something you allow yourself to do. And if you can stop that, you can put something on that works for your body that makes you feel good when you look in the mirror first thing in the morning, well, then that sets the tone for the rest of your day as well. Your your mind, you know, even even something at work, like I do corporate sessions where I teach companies about this. Um, I also have another company with uh, with a good friend of mine where we kind of do, uh, it's called Style Squared, and we do some of these corporate sessions together as well, um, where we teach about okay, if you, if you actually dress for your shape, for your body, how that helps your confidence, how it helps your mood, how it can actually help work and performance at work as well. Because if you think about it, if your mind is too busy thinking, oh my gosh, this, this shirt gaping, is everybody staring at me? You're feeling self-conscious. You're using your cognitive thought processes for something that's completely mm -hmm. not beneficial mm -hmm. to you. Whereas if you're feeling great, you're feeling confident, you're in that meeting, you're talking more confidently, you come across more confident, people take you more seriously there's tons of research around this and so that's where i wanted to kind of break that cycle and that the same way there's stigma around mental health there's stigma around being someone who likes fashion or dressing up and i wanted people to understand that there is good in that side of fashion as well and that it can really help people um mentally and emotionally and whether I do it one-on-one -on -one and, or whether it's in, in, you know, more corporate settings, it's just to help people change their perceptions and their self perspectives and, and things like that. And I don't know, I just, I find it really rewarding because being able to see someone who feels so negative about themselves and just something as simple as that's not the good cut of gene for you, try this shape instead. And then they immediately look at themselves like, oh my God, I look really great. I don't actually, you know, look as bad as I've felt this whole time. And understanding that there you mm -hmm. go, you know, from 10 minutes ago to now, your weight has not right. fluctuated in any way. Your shape has not changed. It's just 
how you're dressing for that shape that's helping you. And so helping people's confidence levels and that in turn obviously will affect so many other areas of their life, their relationships, their work, their, their, their confidence, their self perceptions. Um, and it's just been really rewarding in that sense. And I'm really hoping to be able to do a lot more work in that area. I've kind of come to realize that I really do enjoy the more uh, group setting, the more kind of mm -hmm. teaching setting about this, that I get to teach a larger audience about it. So I'm hoping to do more of that. And now since the book has come out, um, I'm really hoping to be able to, again, blend even more of the mental health right. component of it. I mean, in in the sessions that I will teach to organizations, um, there will always be that bit of a style component in there because I still want people to take that little transferable skill away with them and understand that this is one area you can start with with regaining that self-control for, for mental illness. But um, I do want to focus a lot on teachings from parts of my book and helping organizations and people kind of understand where they can learn more about mental illness, where they can um, work with regards to some of their policies and things like that with regards to the work environment. Um, and it's just a different perspective, right? I also do offer some coaching to people if, if they are struggling with any sort of um, you know, postpartum or anything that they need some help with. And and I'm very clear. I explained to people right at the outset, I have this, you know, on my website yeah. and, and everything that I do in my book, I clearly state, mm -hmm. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not giving people counseling mm -hmm. in any way, but the perspective that I can give to someone going through mental illness, um, particularly postpartum is very different than, for example, someone relaying more theoretical yes. knowledge, right? For me, I can kind of say, this is what I did you know, this is how this part helped me. These were some of the setbacks I had. And so it's just kind of as a, as a guide or as a coach for anyone who might be having this difficulty or is supporting someone with it and just kind of wants to know where I should start, where, what should I do, where are some of the resources I can get help from. Um, so it's a little combination of all of the above uh, is what I do at my company now. And um, I love it because I, I get to do work that I love and call it a career, but I feel like it has a deeper purpose too, because I get to help so many other people. And, you know, since, since launching the book June 1st, I've had so many messages from people saying, I've, you know, helped someone in this area, but after reading your book, I understand from a support person an even deeper understanding of what this individual or that person is going through. I've had people message me saying, I've been dealing with, um, struggles with anxiety or depression. And it's not until I read your book that I had the courage to go wow. and tell my doctor and my family that I was going through this and seek help. And mm. that is the reason I, I wrote the book in the first place. And it just warms my heart and soul to know that it's helping other people get help and to feel that they have the courage and strength to do it. Even though they've had the courage and strength all along, it's just to really feel that they can, they can go forward with it. Well, um, Never underestimate the power of lived experience. And thank you for, for coming on and talking to me today about um, your story, which is, uh, yeah, uh, you, you're very courageous and it was quite the battle. But like I said, um, through suffering, transcending suffering, there's there's even more strength in you now, I believe, than there was before. Um, so I'll just end with this, how your book is now out. So maybe just give a plug for how folks can, can find it. 
Mm -hmm. So if you go to my website, www.stylistteam, so S-T-Y-L-E-S-T-E-E-M.ca, I have a link on there um, to all the resources. So you can get it from places like Chapters Indigo, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. You can do all the ebook versions, uh, Apple Books, Kindle, Kobo, Nook, all of that, Google Play. And um, a portion of the proceeds will also be donated to postpartum and perinatal mental health initiatives and organizations. And soon they will actually, in about probably three to four weeks, um, some of the chapters Indigo stores in Calgary will start to physically carry the books as well. So that'll be great because, um, you know, someone who immediately needs to get a hold of it can. Ebooks are the probably the greatest way is to get it in the hands of somebody because it's immediate. I mean, I'm a first time author. I am uh, self-published and so more unknown. Um, it takes a lot longer for sources like online sources uh, to actually print the copy because it's done kind of print on demand. So for anyone who really wants a printed copy, just be cognizant of that. It takes a little bit of time. Um, that's why I've also been asking people to please leave reviews on the different platforms like the Amazons, like the Chapters Indigos, all of that, because the more there's reviews, the more these systems will actually yeah. pick up the book and make it available faster. So, um, But ebooks is the greatest way for everyone to be able to access it quickly and hopefully in most stores soon too. Well, thank you so much, Yaldo, like I said, um, for your courage and, and sharing your story. And I know it's gonna help many people um, now and in the future. Thank you, I appreciate it. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak with you about it and to continue raising awareness about this. I appreciate it.